is with much pleasure that uh, I introduce you, uh, Professor William Patchett. Whoops. I have here the materials that I promised you yesterday. Uh, I would ask, I've given copies to several people yesterday. I would ask that you not take a copy if you already have one, if there are extras at the end. Uh, those can be made available. So it would be helpful if you could bring this to the chorus each day, because I'll be referring to quotations and from the writings that are contained in here. It will make it easier uh, if uh, you do that. But of course, as in all things, uh, especially in the faith, this is between the individual and his conscience. <laughs> So, does everybody have a copy? Is there anyone who does not have a copy? The human race inherits a history of injustice. This is the reality of where we are. We can say that the Baha'i faith, and in particular the Gatabi Akdas, contains an analysis and understanding of our history and appreciation for the current condition of the human race a vision of the ultimate future of the human race, and finally a program for effecting the transition from the present configuration to that future vision. So let me repeat that. It contains an analysis of the past, an analysis of the present condition, a vision of the future, and a program or a process uh, for uh, the transition, for attaining that future uh, vision, beginning with the current configuration as analyzed by Baha'u'llah. Don't know. Now, the Kitabi Akdas and all of the Baha'i writings view religion as the fundamental relationship of human existence. Religion 
true religion is a relationship between God, the highest thing in existence, and the human being, which is the highest thing in creation. In other words, in the passage which Dr. Danish read last night, uh, from page 65 of the Gleaning, which is quoted in part in this uh, material that I've given you, Baha'u'llah says that everything in creation reflects some attributes of God, but only the human being reflects, to some extent, all of the attributes of God. So this amounts to a logical definition of the human being. <laughs> you know, history of philosophy shows a succession of attempts, some of them rather comical, uh, to define the human being. Uh, the beginning, the Greeks defined the human being as a featherless biped. And of course, then uh, some wag observed that a plucked chicken satisfies this definition. Uh, and therefore, there's no difference between uh, a human being and a plucked chicken uh, if we take this definition. Well, this is obviously a very superficial uh, um, definition of the human being and trying to define the human being in a, in a physical term. Um, Aristotle did somewhat better than that he said that the human being was a rational animal. But of course, we know from the Baha'i faith that um, the human being is not an animal in the first place. And in the second place, rationality is only one of the defining attributes of the human being, not the only one. It's a, certainly a very major one. That's why I say that Aristotle did much better than others. But still, it's inadequate as a definition of the human being. But here, Baha'u'llah gives us, in this passage in the Gleaning, which Dr. Danish read last night, uh, he gives us a logical, spiritual definition of the human being. The human being is that creature, that created being of God, which has the capacity to reflect, to some extent, because it's not perfectly, but to reflect to some extent every attribute of God. And he says in this passage, Baha'u'llah goes on to say, Alone among all created things hath man been singled out for so great a favor, so enduring a bounty. And so this is then a definition of the human being. A definition of something is what? A defining attribute of something is an attribute of the thing which singles out that thing from all other things in existence. Okay? Uh, this is something we can discuss in more detail later on. A, for example, uh, we could define, say, the city of London, England, we could say the city of London, England, is the capital city of England. Now that attribute of London singles out London among all other cities in the world. There's only one capital city of London, of England, excuse me. 
Now, that doesn't define London in all of its totality. That doesn't tell you where it's situated, how many people are in it, what the class structure is, and so forth and so on. What is the cultural life there? There's an infinity of attributes of London that you cannot deduce in any way from just the fact that it is the capital city of England. But that one attribute, being the capital city of England, is a defining attribute of London. Another defining attribute would be to say, London is that city which is situated at such and such a latitude and such and such a longitude. In other words, geographically, you fix it. You determine where it is. That would also define London uh, unequivocally. So we must distinguish between defining attributes and comprehensive attributes. Now, Baha'u'llah tells us that we can never give a comprehensive definition of God. But God has many defining attributes. Uh, God is the unique creator, right? There's only one creator, and God is that creator. Uh, God is the only uncaused cause, as Aristotle demonstrates and as Avicenna demonstrated. Um, God is the only creator of human life on this planet. God is the only absolute being, the only perfect being, the only all-knowing being, and so forth and so on. So in other words, there are many defining attributes of God. And that's why I start with the example of something as, as banal as the city of London, just to show you that this fact of having a defining attribute does not limit the thing. It simply determines the thing from among all other things. Uh, as a matter of fact, not only can we not give a comprehensive definition of God, Abdu'l-Baha and some answered questions explain to us that we cannot give a comprehensive definition even of limited physical reality. In other words, the complexity of even a simple physical reality like this, uh, like that table, uh, we, the human being, cannot give a comprehensive definition of that thing. No matter how many attributes we say of it, uh, we will never exhaust its attributes because even this table has a, an infinite complexity when viewed in all of its dimensions, as modern physics shows us, for example. So, uh, as it turns out, comprehensive definitions are possible only of abstract logical entities of the sort that exist in mathematics. Um, so, so I'm not saying that this is a comprehensive definition of the human being, but it is a logical definition of the human being, which Baha'u'llah gives. Namely, the human being is that unique entity created by God and which has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. Nothing else in creation has this capacity. Nothing else in creation... What neither in the spiritual world, neither in the physical world, has that capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. Now, let's examine this notion of reflection a little bit. So, just before I go on, let me say this. So, this then answers this age-old question of what is the human being? This gives a definition of the human being which can never be refuted or challenged. And notice that this definition of the human being defines the human being in his essence. 
because it is obviously conceivable uh, that uh, human life on other planets or in other systems uh, could have, in some ways, a very different physical form. Uh, we can imagine, for example, that life could be based on something other than carbon. It could be based on silicon or something like that. Uh, so one could imagine that the physical human being could exist uh, in, uh, in another form. But the human being, these would be still be human beings in the very precise sense that they would have souls which have the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. I don't mean to suggest that I necessarily think that there are human beings in other bizarre forms. I'm simply pointing out that this definition of the human being as a spiritual reality defines the human being in his essence. It's a once and for all definition. It will always be true as true under all physical conditions that one could conceive and so forth. Now, let's think about what this means to reflect all of the attributes of God. Let's think what this means. Baha'u'llah teaches us to think of God as the sun, the source of light, and the attributes of God as the rays of the sun, the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the rays of the sun, <coughs> which appear in their pure form as white light, actually have an infinity of color involved in them the whole spectrum of colors. But this spectrum of colors, this infinity of different attributes, does not appear in the light in its pure form. In other words, when the light comes from the sun, when it's generated by the sun, it appears as a pure white light. There is no differentiation of attributes in the essence of God himself. This Abdu'l-Baha makes very clear, beginning with the first tablet that Abdu'l-Baha is known to have written, which he wrote at the age of 15, which is the commentary on the Hadith, I was a hidden treasure. Uh, and this tablet is the most philosophical of Abdu'l-Baha's work. And very interestingly, the conditions under which this was written, I just mentioned this, um, historically it was in the Baghdad period, and one of the learned, he was not a mullah, but he was a learned man, came to Baha'u'llah, and he asked Baha'u'llah to elucidate this tradition, uh, a hadith of Muhammad, uh, which Muhammad said, speaking in the voice of God, I was a hidden treasure and desired to be known, hence I created thee. And uh, Baha'u'llah said, the master will answer this. He immediately turned and said, the master will answer this. The master was 15 years old, whereupon Abdu'l-Baha immediately sat down and composed this treatise. This treatise is in the most mature philosophical form. It is in every respect comparable to the most mature writings of Plato, of Aristotle, of Avicenna. And it in fact begins where the philosophical tradition of humanity ends at that point. In other words, it begins exactly at the summit of everything that came before the Baha'i faith. 
And so those of us in the West who don't have access to all of the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, we tend to judge Abdu'l-Bahá's style from the um, general style of his talks, such as in Promulgation of Universal Peace. Um, and we tend to think of his style as being somewhat general and sort of uh, not very philosophical or scientific in the way he talks about things in this very general, easy way. Uh, though when you begin to examine, you realize the rigorous logic that underlies these things. But this was the more mature style of Abdu'l-Bahá. The original style of Abdu'l-Bahá represented a slightly more mature style than everything that had come before it. In other words, Abdu'l-Bahá started at the summit. The, the original style of Abdu'l-Bahá was the summit of everything that had gone before it, from beginning up until that point. And so... The, his, the later works of Abdu'l-Bahá actually reflect a style which goes beyond everything that had come previously. So that's just an interesting uh, sort of aside about this. And in this tablet, Abdu'l-Bahá explains that there is no differentiation of attributes within the essence of God. In other words, we cannot apply any attribute to God himself. Because to apply an attribute to God would be to say, in effect, that something pre-exists God. It is God who defines attributes, not attributes who define God. In other words, if we say that God is good, what does this mean? This sounds as if it means there is a category of existence called goodness and that God has to fit into this. You see? If you say that God is all-knowing, well, this sounds like, well, there's a category of existence called the, the knowing beings and the non-knowing beings, and God has to fit into the knowing one. And finally, he, he is the, the, the most knowing, but still, he is in this category. Whereas God, in fact, as Abdu'l-Bahá explains very clearly in this habit, precedes all categories. He generates the categories. So what is good, good is what God decrees. That is good which God has decreed to be good. That is intelligent which God decrees or makes to be intelligent, etc., etc. In other words, all categories of existence all attributes are generated by God. And there is no differentiation of attributes within the essence of God. So these, of course, are some very metaphysical statements. But if we think of this analogy of the sun and the rays, I think it's very clear. In other words, you can see that in the sun itself, the sun generates this pure white light. You don't see the different colors, blue and red and green, in the light itself within the sun. These attributes that are inherent in the light, they are, they are there. It's that they're not differentiated. You understand? Abdu'l-Bahá is not saying that these attributes are not in God. He says that they're not differentiated in the level of the essence of God. We have to be very careful. 
that uh, not to, uh, you know, there's a very precise terminology that's involved. Now, Abdu'l-Baha explained in the Tablet of the Universe, among other places, that differentiation occurs only when the attributes of God become incident in created reality. So, let's look around us at the physical world. We see different colors. We see green grass, green trees, my blue jacket, and so on. We see differentiation of colors. Now, what is the basis of this differentiation of color? The basis is the limitation of the created world. That is, why does this jacket look blue? Why does it look blue? Physically, it looks blue for exactly the following reason. The nature of this cloth in this jacket is such that when white light is incident on the cloth, the cloth absorbs all of the light except the blue. In other words, there's a whole spectrum of light, the red, the green, the yellow. All of that other spectrum is absorbed by this. Only the blue is reflected. And therefore, the, you see this as blue. The same is true for green or whatever. So things appear to be differentiated, that is, blue, green, yellow, because of their limitations, because of their incapacity to reflect everything that is incident upon them. They can only reflect something of what is incident upon them. Now, now let's compare with a mirror. What is the logical definition of a mirror? The logical definition of a mirror is a mirror is that physical substance which reflects all of the light that is incident upon it and absorbs none of the light. Okay? That's a logical definition of a mirror. I mean, we could define a mirror physically as a flat thing that's covered with mercury or whatever you want to say. Okay? But there again, that would be like the Federalist biped because I could have a mirror made out of wood or a mirror made out of all sorts of things. So, a mirror is, logically speaking, a physical substance which has the capacity to reflect all of the light that is incident upon it, which absorbs none of it. So, if I shine white light into a mirror, what I see reflected from the mirror is white light. In other words, the property of the mirror is to reflect everything that is incident upon it. Now, this is the human soul. This is the human soul, this is this reality of the human being, which has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God, that is, to reflect in some degree all of the light of God that is incident upon it. Now, I say in some degree, of course, a perfect mirror would reflect perfectly all of the light, but we could imagine also an imperfect mirror uh, that is not completely smooth, uh, and so therefore it is going to reflect, re refract the light in various ways. Or another analogy which Abdu'l-Baha uses, which is very, uh, which is very uh, powerful, is a prism. You know that a prism, if you shine white light onto a prism, it 
splits the light up into the spectrum of colors. You see all the colors reflected in the prism. But each prism is an individual physical object. No two prisms will refract the light in exactly the same way. In other words, one prism would give more uh, weight to the red part of the spectrum, and another prism more to the green part of the spectrum. So this is the individuality of our souls. In other words, every human soul reflects in some degree all of the attributes of God, but not in the same proportion. There's individuality in the way this is done. And this is like so many different prisms. So to sum up the human reality, we can say that there are two ways in which we are the same and one way in which we are different from each other. This is very clear from the writing. The first way in which we are the same is that all human souls are created of the same substance. Well, we know the hidden word which says this. Know the why we have created you all from the same substance, that no man shall exalt himself above his neighbor. So my soul is not made of better stuff than your soul. In other words, all our souls are made of the same substance. There's no inherent superiority in the, 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 what my soul is made out of with respect to what your soul is made out of. This is the first point of unity. The second point of unity is this defining attribute of the human being, that I've been talking about, namely that the human being has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. And this is clear over and over again in the writings. Every human soul has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. It's not just the statement that Dr. Danish read last night. Uh, these are literally hundred places in the writings where he repeats in different ways exactly the same thing. The human soul alone of all human realities reflects all of the attributes of God. So this, again, you see, it could have, logically, it could have been different, right? It could be that God created us so that your soul could reflect certain attributes and mine and certain others, and we could say, well, generally speaking, all of the attributes are reflected in some human being, but not necessarily in a given human being. But no, that's not the case. Every individual human soul has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. However, there is a third respect in which human souls differ, and that is that the degree or proportion in which we reflect, our souls reflect these attributes, is different. This is the individual difference that is innate. And you can reread the chapter in Some Answered Questions about the causes and the difference in the character of men, where Abdu'l-Bahá makes it absolutely clear that there are innate differences in spiritual capacity. Okay? There's no doubt about this. Uh, so Abdu'l-Bahá is not a Lockean. He is not a Humean. He is not a um, Skinnerian. Uh, okay? He, uh, <laughs> in fact, in, in another uh, passage, um, I think it's from the Tablet of August Forel, but in any case it's in... Um, the, in Baha'i world faith, uh, Abdu Baha specifically contrasts the teachings of the prophets with that scientific, that uh, notion which was then current in science 
namely that all human beings have the same capacity at the beginning and it's only experience that makes them different. This idea goes back to Locke into the late Renaissance psychologist Rousseau Locke and so on who held this uh, super egalitarian notion that there were no individual differences, the notion of the tabula rasa that uh, everybody starts out like a blank sheet on which experience rides. And Abdu'l-Baha specifically cites this, and he says, this is the teaching of some philosophers and some psychologists, but the prophets of God teach, know that there are innate individual differences. And so this is quite clear. And in the same passage in Some Answered Questions, Abdu'l-Baha, and the one I referred to in the, the, the chapter on the causes of the difference in the character of a human being, Abdu'l-Baha makes it very clear he says, if you take two children from the same family, in other words, with the same parent, eating the same food, uh, living in the same environment, going to the same school, with the same teachers, in other words, he mentions all the genetic variables, all the social variables that you can think of. He says, if all of these are the same, he said, still you will find some who are very right in the sciences and others who are not so uh, well, you know, um, uh, able in the sciences and so on and so on. Uh, so he makes it very clear that there are innate differences. But then he goes on to make the point, which is, which is obvious, that these differences do not imply superiority or inferiority. In other words, this is another notion which I don't want to get into now. Well, maybe I will in a, in a few minutes, but I don't want to get directly into it. Um, you see, we immediately react to this notion of the human being as, in some sense, unfair. We say that that means that God made, uh, made you smart and me stupid. Uh, but you see, uh, intelligence, in science, which is Abdu'l-Baha's example in that particular case, is, uh, is just one example of a difference. In other words, suppose you are smarter than me, but I'm a better ballet dancer than you are. I mean, you could just as well feel uh, it's not fair that God made me a better ballet dancer and you uh, an uncoordinated oaf, you know. In other words, uh, it is we who make these comparisons and it is society, this competitive society we live in, which arranges these judgments into a hierarchy of values and says that those who possess certain capacities are better than others. That's not God that's doing that. But we'll talk more about this later. This is very relevant to the Kitabiyatvas, as a matter of fact. Uh, but just let me suggest for the moment, and we can get into this later on, that the perception that there's some injustice in God's having created individual differences proceeds not from the reality of the human being, but it proceeds from an extremely limited, materialistic, distorted conception of the human being that derives from an extreme competitiveness that, for certain reasons, which I'll talk about later, has been generated by uh, modern society, okay? Extreme individualism and extreme competitiveness. But 
we can refute this notion in a simply logical way in the following, that there are an infinity of attributes of God. And what Baha'u'llah says is that the proportion in which we reflect these attributes is different from each between each individual. Like, again, the prism. Two prisms, which each reflect the whole spectrum of light, but one prism will show more of the red, the other will show more of the blue. And now you come to the question, which is better, blue or red? And you see immediately that has no, that has no sense. It's exactly like Abdu'l-Bahá's example of the Garden of Flowers. And which flower is better, the red or the yellow, or the one that smells one way or the one that smells the other way? Difference does not imply superiority or inferiority. This is the basic notion, which the Baha'i faith teaches, and which only the Baha'is have the capacity to understand at this stage in history. Nobody else understands this fact. It is so ingrained in the cultures that exist that difference immediately implies inferiority or superiority. The minute difference is perceived, the next question people ask is, which is better? Right? As soon as there's a recognition of difference, the next question people ask without even thinking whether this is an appropriate question is, okay, well, if that person is white and that person is black, well, which is better, white or black? You know? The fact that things can simply be different without being arranged in some hierarchy is simply uh, foreign to the modern cultural notion. So I'm suggesting that this is a cultural bias which leads us to perceive these innate differences in a negative way. And this is one of the things which uh, it will be important in coming to grips with the Kitab because the Kitab is based on the reality of the human being, not on some cultural perception of the human being. It's based on the reality, as Hussein was saying last night. Uh, it is based on the reality, the full spectrum of the human reality, uh, and it's not based on some patty cake image of the human being that has been invented by uh, some limited group of psychologists or philosophers or, or anything else. And because it is based on the human reality, it is true. It is true in the quite literal scientific sense. In fact, uh, if you'll notice the title of my article that I've given you, the subtitle is The Causality Principle in the World of Being. And this is what we will be seeing this week, is that the Kitabi Akdas is the counterpart for the spiritual world to science in the material world. The Kitabiyakdas gives us the scientific understanding of the operation of the law of cause and effect in the spiritual world. That's exactly what the, the Kitabiyakdas does. Okay? So the Kitabiyakdas is not a book of rules. It is not a book of convention. It is not a book of exhortations about you should be a good boy and act in such and such a way. It is telling you this is the law of cause and effect in spiritual reality. If you want to live in harmony with your reality, then this is the way to do it. If you don't want to, don't do it. God is sufficiently, is independent of his creatures. He has no need of their worship. If you don't want to obey the laws of, you know, you don't want to be faithful to your wife, 
Okay? Don't be faithful to your wife. You'll suffer. I mean, you'll louse up your marriage and so on and so on. You will suffer a humiliating torment in the next world. But if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. You know, it's not going not, not to hurt anybody else. Uh, and so on and so on. So, uh, there it is. There it is. It is the choice sealed wine. It is the law of cause and effect in spirituality, which is being given to us. It is being given to us the understanding of the law of cause and effect in spiritual reality. Based on the God-created reality of the human being. That's what the Gitaviyat does here. And that's why it is, as Shoghi Findi says of it, uh, the consummation of all the holy books of the past. Um, what, uh, I, I've quoted that passage. You know that it's in the, uh, it's from God Passes By, and it's quoted in the, uh, introduction. Right. It's on page 204 of this. Um, the principal repository of that law which the prophet Isaiah had anticipated and which the writer of the apocalypse had described as the new heaven and the new earth, as the tabernacle of God, as the holy city, as the bride, the new Jerusalem coming down from God, the most holy book, whose provisions must remain inviolate for no less than a thousand years, and whose system will embrace the entire planet, as the brightest emanation of the mind of Baha'u'llah, as the mother book of his dispensation and the charter of his new world order. So, this is why the Kitab Yaqdas has this exalted status, because it is this key to understanding the law of cause and effect in the spiritual world. Now, I begin by talking about history. Now, in the same passage on page 65 of the gleanings that Hussein read last night, uh, Baha'u'llah goes on to say the following thing. He says, first, alone of all created things, the human being has been singled out for this favor. And he said, then he says the following thing. He says, the purpose of God and endowing the human being with this capacity is so that the human being can know and love God. So in other words, not only did God create us this way, but there's a reason why he created us this way. And he created us this way so that we can know and love God. Uh, you have the gleanings there? Is that? Yeah. Okay, why don't you read that? Uh, But, but it, it, it's previous to this, just in the passage, just before that. He says, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What he says is, first he talks about, the, the passage starts out about how it is that God has created. 
that God has brought from utter nothingness. You found it? Okay, it's worth it. All praise to the unity of God and all honor to Him, the sovereign Lord, the incomparable and all glorious ruler of the universe, who out of utter nothingness hath created the reality of all things. So he goes on about the greatness of God in creating. Nothing short of his all-encompassing grace, his all-pervading mercy could possibly have achieved it. Then he says, having created the world and all that liveth and moveth therein, he through the direct and operation of his unconstrained and sovereign will chose to confer upon man the unique distinction and capacity to know him and to love him a capacity that must needs be regarded as the generating impulse and the primary purpose underlying the whole of creation. So in other words, the only reason God created anything at all was so that he could create the human being which has this capacity to know him and love him. And this capacity to know and love God is, of course, the same as this capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. Upon the inmost reality of each and every created thing, he has shed the light of one of his names. But upon the reality of man, he has focused the radiance of all his names and attributes and made it a mirror of his own self. Alone of all created things has man been singled out for so great a favor. So, the purpose then in creating man was to make man a mirror of the image of God. In other words, we are created to be worthy partners in dialogue with God. Yes, you had a question. We will talk about this. When I get on Sunday night, when I give the um, lecture on the structure of reality, I'll talk about this. Uh, it doesn't mean absolute nothingness, because as Abdu Baha says, as Aristotle already said before Abdu Baha, and as Abdu Baha reiterates, you couldn't have anything that comes from absolute nothingness. If there was absolute nothingness, there never would be anything, and. Uh, Anything that exists cannot be annihilated because you can't transform existence into absolute non-existence either. So obviously he doesn't mean, you know. But in the first place, God always existed, right? So nothing that God made came from nothing. It came from God. Okay. Doesn't mean it's made out of God, but it means it came from God. But Baha'u'llah explains how God created actually. Okay. He started with a point, the point moved, he generated a line, he splits the line lengthwise, and then he causes the two lines to revolve around each other, which is simple harmonic motion. In other words, which generates the DNA, which generates uh, essentially fractals. In other words, it represents an infinite re repetition of certain patterns, which produces differentiated reality. But this is explained in the writings of the faith, okay? So in a certain sense, the point is nothing because it has no dimension, but it's still an existent reality. So we have to understand what that means. But it doesn't mean absolute nothing. OK? 
Okay, it does not mean absolute nothing. That's clear. Okay. So, so at least on Sunday night, uh, those of you who are interested, uh, we can discuss these things in much more detail. Okay, so, so here we see then that the purpose of God in creating man was to create a worthy partner in dialogue with himself. This is the human destiny. Therefore, history, both collective history and individual history, is a history of the dialogue between us and God. That's what history is. You want to know what history is? Marx said history was a class struggle. Okay? Other historians say that history is a chaos of events. Others say that history is uh, even the history of religion. History is the history of the dialogue between God and humanity. That's what history is. The history of every individual is the history of the dialogue between that individual and God. And the history of every culture is the history of the dialogue between that people or that culture and God. Now, just as, now, in this tablet that I mentioned that Abdu'l-Bahá wrote the commentary on I Was a Hidden Treasure, you need your book back. Uh, so I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Just... Oh, yeah. He says that not only that there is differentiation of attributes in the level of creation, but he says that every human soul has a dominant attribute. That there is, God has caused one attribute to be dominant in each human being. Now, um, this is simply a, a, a somewhat philosophical way of saying what we already know from a common sense basis. Strong points and our weak points, right? As we all have our natural strong points and our natural weak points, we can see here's a person who from a very early age was very verbal, was very articulate, was very logical. Here's another person who was very creative, imaginative, artistic. Here's another person who is very active and dynamic and uh, inventive and manipulating the physical world in all sorts of ways and so on and so on. So we know this. I mean, we can see from the very early age that children show very marked tendencies. Uh, they have strong points and weak points. And uh, so uh, every individual has a dominant attribute, and we can say, in the same way, every culture has a dominant attitude. And again, you can see uh, why nationalism is such a pernicious thing. Because nationalism is, is in effect the following thing. Nationalism is where a cultural group takes their cultural strong point, forgets its obvious weak point, and says that these strong points are a model for the whole rest of humanity. No. And then proceed to impose what they perceive their strong points to be on everybody else. 
so, you know, uh, the Germans were very smart people. They are very smart people. Okay? But Hitler took this fact, uh, and he flattered the ego of the Germans, and he produced Nazism. Uh, he produced the illusion, the collective illusion, that the Germans were a master race and so on and so on. Well, this is just one very easy example, but, you know, look at what's going on in, in fundamentalist Islam today. And it's exactly the same thing. Uh, and uh, so every individual does this. Every culture does this. This is this uh, fact of taking one's dominant attribute of one strong point and making of this a reason for pride and for exalting oneself over other people. Or over other cultures, collectively. Uh, whereas, from the point of view of the Baha'i faith, there is no universal person today. There is no universal personality in existence today. Uh, there is no universal culture. In other words, our history has totally differentiated these attributes of God in such a way that each of the attributes is manifested to a very high degree in certain very specific ways. But no culture or no individual or no philosophy manifests all of these attributes in a complete way. Of course, there was a perfect person, and that's Abdu'l-Bahá. This is the importance of Abdu'l-Bahá as a perfect exemplar, is that Baha'u'lláh has given us not only the teachings, but he has, in fact, brought into being a prototype of universality, and that is Abdu'l-Bahá. And so this is why Abdu'l-Bahá is the center of the covenant, that is, the example for all time of um, true universality. So we have at least the fact that universality has been achieved uh, but this represents the ideal towards which we are trying. So, again, history is the history of a dialogue between God and man. Between God and the whole human race. Local histories are histories between those peoples or cultures and God. Individual histories are the history of the dialogue between that individual and this history has taken place in such a way that it has brought to the fore in each case certain attributes and it has suppressed or neglected, perhaps better, certain other attributes. In other words, it is an imbalanced history. And this is what I mean when I say that we inherit a history of injustice. Justice means balance. Justice means giving the proper value, the inherent value to each thing. Recognizing the proportion between these values and giving the value to it. Another definition of justice, which is logically equivalent, but which perhaps is more emotional, is that justice is simply those conditions which allow love to be born and flourish. 
Now, when we have a history of injustice, this means that our history, our dialogue with God up until now, is shot through, is pervaded by the terrible imbalance, these injustices. Let's take the most obvious case. I don't say it's the most important, but it's the most obvious. Namely, slavery. Slavery can be defined as a social pattern in which one social group systematically exploits another identifiable social group by, on the one hand, limiting the social prerogatives of the oppressed group, but at the same time forcing the oppressed group to produce more than it consumes. So that's a logical definition of slavery. So slavery can be on any basis, religious, racial, uh, social, economic, whatever. Now, I state systematic exploitation because human relationships are always involve a certain amount of exploitation. I mean, even our casual relationships with each other, as long as we need something from each other, there's a certain amount of manipulation involved in any situation. I say a certain amount. I don't want to say, I'm not trying to say the old cynical thing that humans can't love and humans can't, aren't capable of genuine self-sacrifice. I'm saying that as long as the human ego exists, there will always be some degree, even if it's only 1% or there's always some degree of self-interest in any kind of because we're not God. That's what it means to be imperfect rather than perfect. Um, but again, in the past, these manipulative elements, these exploitative elements have been greater than they will be in the future as we spiritualize them. So, slavery is not just the existence of some exploitation. It is systematic. It is systematic, and it's where one identifiable social group systematically restricts the freedom of another group and forces that group to produce more than it consumes. Now, slavery in this precise sense has been the basis of every society up until the 19th century. There are no exceptions. Name one society that has not been founded on slavery. Because there isn't one, right? Uh, none of the prophets of the past abolished slavery. Moses didn't abolish slavery. The read the Old Testament; it's a it's a veritable slave owner's manual. Okay, in other words, if this guy's slave hits this guy's slave, then this is what you do. Uh, nowhere does Moses say it's immoral to have slaves. He doesn't say you should have them either. But he just does not pronounce it. Though. But Moses did a very clever thing, however. He said, every seven days you will stop work. Every seven days you will stop work. Everybody. And he made this a moral principle on an equal with the most fundamental moral principles. One of the Ten Commandments. In other words, you should love your God 
with all your mind, your heart, and your soul. Uh, you should not covet your neighbor's life or his possessions. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't kill. I mean, everybody would agree that these are very fundamental moral principles. And then, right in the middle, he has, and every seven days you stop work. Well, why didn't Moses just say, you know, it would be a good idea if every seven days or so you stopped work? Well, the point is that those who are at the top of the heap, the aristocrats in the society, don't have to stop work every seven days because they're not working anyway. All right? And since these are the decision makers in the society, if he had said, well, it's a good idea that you stop work every seven days, then okay, yeah, well, okay, we won't, we won't, we'll do even less on on Saturday than we do <laughs> during the week. But he says, no, it's a command of God. Just as you shall not kill and you shall not steal, you shall stop work every seven days. So this assured at least that the slaves were one seventh free. In other words, every seven days, uh, they could not be forced to work for the entire twenty-four hours. And um, in 1966, when I the first time I went to Russia, it was to a mathematics conference in, in Moscow. Uh, I had a guide who was obviously a KGB agent uh, who spoke very good English, uh, and I spoke no Russian at the time and speak very little Russian now. So I'm struggling along with Vadim's help. Um, um, but. Uh, one Sunday, my guide and I were walking in the, in the center of Moscow, and I said, oh, "Why are all the uh, why are all the the shops closed?" So she said, "Well, it's Sunday." I said, "Yeah, so what? So it's Sunday. I mean, what's what's that to you?" She said, "Well, they've always been closed on Sunday." And I said, "Look, I said, don't kid me. You know as well as I do." That this practice started 3,500 years ago when a stutterer in a desert named Moses said that you shall stop work every seven days. And she says, Yeah. And I said, uh, So, I said, Here in an atheist country, you know, 3,500 years later, a country which loudly proclaims it has no need of God and that religion is a superstition, that this Moses has given, you know, the communist worker, you know, a rest every seven days. I said, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And so, so then she said, well, actually, Lenin tried to institute a 10-day week, but it didn't work. I said, well, I said, uh, the Russians may be communists, but I said, they're not stupid, you know. <laughs> they can count, you know, every 10 days. It's not as much as every seven days, you know. So, Lenin couldn't change the law of Moses, okay, even in the Soviet Union, when he had absolute power, okay. He couldn't do it. I mean, he tried to start a 10-day week, and he couldn't do it. I mean, Stalin shot people who got to work five minutes late, but they never could change the law of Moses. I mean, this is true. That's exactly what happened. Still, right now, they, they closed the shops. I mean, they always did during the whole communist period. So, so you can see that that uh, even though Moses did not forbid slavery, Moses nonetheless instituted a law 
which relieved the condition of slavery in a very clever way. And to make it absolutely clear, I mean, you can read this, it's in the Bible. Uh, after Moses had given the Ten Commandments, two people were brought to Moses and said, uh, said Moses, uh, these two people were working on the Sabbath. They've broken the law of the Sabbath. What, we, what should we do? And so these guys are sort of standing there, you know, sort of, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, yeah, we were doing a little work, whatever, you know. Uh, it's not such a big deal. You know. And so uh, Moses said they should be stoned to death. And they were taken out and immediately stoned to death. I imagine that not too many people broke the Sabbath. Oh. Now, you know, you say, well, this is brutal. You know, a prophet stoning people to death for working the Sabbath. Well, point again is that Moses was doing this to protect generations, uh, to alleviate generations, uh, the conditions of generations of workers for thousands of years, making this an absolute law. So, this is what the prophets did. They did not forbid directly these injustices. Because they recognized that the condition of mankind at that time was such that man was not capable of manifesting in a balanced way perfect justice. So we inherit a history of injustice. Uh, another example of injustice is the oppression of women by men. This, in my personal opinion, is the greatest injustice we inherit. Because I think it's much greater than racial prejudice and all of these other prejudices. I'm not diminishing the negative effects of such prejudice and racial on, and they're horrible. You look at the war in Yugoslavia and so on and see, you know, how terrible, how pernicious, you know, these prejudices are. And, uh, but uh, nonetheless, um, um, I feel that the suppression of women by men is by far the most pernicious because this takes place in the intimacy of the most fundamental relationship, as we will see in the Katambiyanka. The most fundamental relationship which exists is between man and God. In other words, the fundamental dialogue is between us and God. That's it. History is a history of the dialogue between us and God. But the second most fundamental relationship that humans can have is between husband and wife. Because the whole human race comes forth in this relationship. In other words, the couple is the basis of the family. The family is the, is the mold that stamps out the future generation. Now, if this relationship is skewed, if this relationship between the husband and wife is asymmetric, then it's going to stamp out an asymmetric, in other words, unjust. Again, lack of symmetry is the imbalance. If this relationship is imbalanced, if it is asymmetric, then it's going to stamp out every generation in this mold. That's the whole history of the human race. I mean, this relationship has never been balanced. It has always been asymmetric. It has always been skewed, as Abdu'l-Bahá says. He says it very explicitly. 
So we inherit a history of injustice. We inherit a history of injustice. Now, the next question is, what is the dynamics of injustice? From whence comes the injustice? I mean, we've talked about the fact of the injustice. Okay? But what is the mainspring of this Well, Baha'u'llah tells us explicitly. It is the seeking of power. All injustice comes from the seeking of power. Now here again, we have to be very explicit in our terms. I am not saying that injustice comes from the exercise of power. Power is one of the attributes of God. We speak of the power of faith, the power of love. I'm not saying that power is immoral. Power is from God. I'm saying it is the seeking of power that produces injustice, not the exercise of power. In itself, the power can be exercised for good or for evil. Power is morally neutral. It can be used either for good or evil. But I'm saying the seeking of power is evil. Well, let's read one passage where Baha'u'llah says this. Uh, it's quoted in this. Uh, and uh, find it. Okay, it's on page 228. And amongst the realms of unity is the unity of rank and station. It redoundeth to the exaltation of the cause, glorifying it among all people. Ever since the seeking of preference and distinction came into play, the world hath been laid waste. It has become desperate. What is the seeking of preference and distinction? Notice he doesn't say ever since preference and distinction came into play, the seeking of preference. The seeking of power. Those who have fought from the ocean of divine utterance and fixed their gaze upon the rim of glory should regard themselves as being on the same level as the others and in the same station. Were this matter to be definitively established and conclusively demonstrated through the power and might of God, the world would become as the Abha paradise. This is the vision of the future. In other words, when we defeat the seeking of power, this is the essential condition for bringing about this vision of the unity of man, the kingdom of God on earth. Indeed, man is noble inasmuch as each is a repository of the sign of God. There we go back to the creation of man again. In other words, in this created condition, man is noble because he reflects all of the attributes of God. Nevertheless, to regard oneself as superior in knowledge, learning, or virtue, or to exalt oneself, or to seek preference, is a grievous transgression 
uh, it's not just a little bit bad. It is a grievous transgression. Great is the blessedness of those who are adorned with the ornament of this unity and have been graciously confirmed by God. Well, I could go on. There, there are literally hundreds of statements now that confirm the source of injustice is the seeking of power. Now, to seek power means to make power an end. The proper use of power is to make power a means to the true end. What is the true end? The true end is love. Because love is the highest value. And love is, in fact, the only universal value. What do I mean by universal value? I mean a value which is applicable in all times, in all circumstances. There is no conceivable existential situation in which an increase in love will not be beneficial. In other words, it is good to eat nourishing food. But if you are sick or weak, or you've already eaten a full meal or whatever, there are certain circumstances in which it is not good to eat, which is in fact harmful to eat. Uh, there are certain circumstances in which um, an increase in power, an increase in authority, or a decrease in power and authority are not good things. But there is no circumstance in which an increase in love is not beneficial. Love is, in fact, the only universal value. Well, Abdu'l-Bahá tells us this. It's on page 212 of the uh, book. You know this. This is Abdul Baha's uh, statement about love. I haven't quoted it fully. I've left out some things. Love is the mystery of divine revelation. Love is the breath of the Holy Spirit inspired into the human spirit. Love is the cause of the manifestation of the truth, God, in the phenomenal world. Love is the necessary tie proceeding from the realities of things through divine creation. Well, there it is. It's the fundamental universal law. Because it is the necessary tie proceeding from the realities of things through divine creation. In other words, it is the fundamental connection between each and every created thing. Love is the means of the most great happiness in both the material and spiritual world. Love is the greatest law in this vast universe of God. Love is the one law which causes and controls order among the existing atoms. Love is the cause of the civilization of nations. So, love is, as he says, the cause of happiness. Why is that? Well, one level you can say it's that way because God made it that way. True. But God has given us minds so that we can understand why he did it. Love is the one human interaction or the one human transaction which is experienced positively by both giver and receiver. Both the lover and the beloved 
derive happiness from the experience of love. It is, to use the common terminology, which I don't really like, but it is a win-win transaction. Okay? In other words, justice, a transaction based on justice, can, under certain circumstances, be a win-lose transaction, or it certainly can be perceived that way. Because at some point, you may have to give up something by justice that you're attached to. Now, of course, we know ultimately that it is for your benefit, if it's for justice and so on, but you may perceive it as a loss for a time. But never will you perceive love as a loss. Never, if you are the object of love or if you are the giver of love, will you perceive this as a loss. So, love is the one transaction between human beings that creates happiness, well, on the part both of giver and receiver. Now, what has created this perception that is so widespread that there are no really win-win transactions, that they're always winners and losers? Well, culturally, this comes again from this competitive view of society, which I will talk about and which I alluded to earlier. But more fundamentally, it comes from the following. It comes from an unthinking generalization of materialistic reasoning to spiritual reality. And that again brings us back to the Kitabi Akdash as the causality principle in the spiritual world. Let me explain. It's very simple. A material reality is diminished if it is shared. That's a fact of physical existence. If I have an apple and I share it with you, we each have share half, half apple, right? We each have half of an apple. I mean, that's the fact. You know, if I share it with everybody, we each have a little piece of it. And this is the first principle of economics. I mean, right? If you go into any economics course anywhere in the world, okay? The first day, what do they tell you? Economics. Economics is competition for limited resources. That's the whole basis of economics, right? Okay? Resources are limited. The more limited they are, the greater the competition, the more expensive it is. That which is rare is dear, right? This is the fundamental principle of economics. The more unique a thing is, the more rare it is, the less general it is, the more valuable it is. Value is specialness. The more particular a thing is, the more valuable it is. This is the principle that governs material transactions. In any case, it has so far governed material I will have something to say about that also later on. But only after we've finished. But my main point here is that this law does not apply to spiritual things. The spiritual law is exactly the opposite. Spiritual realities are multiplied when they're shared, not diminished. If I have a good idea and I share it with you, then we both have a good idea. Is the good idea diminished by being shared or is it multiplied? If I have love and I share it with you, then we both have love. We all know, is it not the most fundamental fact of life that love calls forth love? Right? In other words, the natural response, even if you Detest 
somebody, if you, for certain reasons, have a dislike to somebody, if that person is truly loving towards you, your spontaneous reaction is going to be to respond by being loving towards them. Because love begets love. That's just the law of love. Spiritual realities are multiplied by being sharing. Sharing multiplies spirituality. Whereas sharing diminishes material reality. Okay? Therefore, the perception that in any transaction there must be gain and loss, which is true in the material sense, because if I want to buy something, I have to give money for it, so there is gain and loss. I gain the thing, but I have to give up the money to get it. So in a material transaction, there is always gain and loss. But in spiritual transactions, this does not apply. This law does not apply to the spiritual world. This whole notion of gain and loss is a materialistic notion. It is not a spiritual notion. Because any transaction that is based on love, there is no loss. There is only gain part both As says, love creates happiness. As he says elsewhere, the spiritual world, which means love again, only gives happiness. The spiritual world cannot give unhappiness. All unhappiness comes from some form of attachment to the material world or to materialistic thinking about spiritual. This is in some uh, in Paris talk. So, love then is the ultimate goal. If love is the greatest value, then love is the only true end. The only thing that we should seek is love. Why should we seek anything else? If love will make us happy, why should I seek something that's going to make me unhappy? If I can seek something that will make me happy. So, love will make me happy. will make all of us happy. Now, by seeking power instead of love, we have made the means to attaining love the end. In other words, power, which can be used to establish justice. And as I say, what is justice? Justice is simply the conditions under which love flourishes. Notice one important thing here. This is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. If you want to understand the Kitabiagas, you have to understand this. Love is the only thing that power cannot attain. Think of that. Power can do a lot. You know, there's a story about one of the Russian czars. I've forgotten which one it was. Uh, But he told one of his ministers, he said, Go out and make the people love me. In other words, here's a man who had absolute power, but he couldn't have the one thing he wanted, namely that people love him. Why? Because you can't command love. If you don't believe it, think of the person you dislike the most and will yourself to love them. You can't do it, right? An application, the force of will cannot create love. Love can only be invited. 
and what invites love, death. When the proper balance is established, when the proper values are implemented, then the conditions under which love is born and flourished are created. So justice is the conditions under which love is born and flourished. And we can use power to establish justice. So if we expend the power to establish justice, then this serves the goal of establishing love. But what we have done in our history is reverse this process. We have made power the end. We seek power, and therefore we sacrifice justice and love to power. What do we sacrifice in order to get power? We sacrifice the quality of our human relationship. The successful businessman, what does he sacrifice? He sacrifices his wife, his kids, his family, the love of everybody. Everybody hates his guts because all he does is manipulate and control them all day long. And so, sure, he's successful. He gets his power. But he's gotten this at the extent, at the sacrifice of justice. So, the proper relationship, the God-intended relationship between love, justice, and power, is that power is to be expended, is to serve justice, and justice is to serve love. And what we have done in our history, in our dialogue with God, is turn this around and justice has been enslaved by power and love has been enslaved by injustice. And that's why the human race inherits a history of injustice. Now, let me just say one final word. We'll have five minutes. Five minutes according to my watch. <laughs> that how does Baha'u'llah do this? How does Baha'u'llah defeat the secret power? Well, this takes place on two levels. On the one level, he gives us the law of prayer, he gives us this individual relationship with God, which allows us to experience a pure love relationship. In other words, we know what pure love is because God is the source of pure love. So in daily prayer and meditation, which is the heart of individual discipline, we experience love and therefore as individuals we can learn to seek to renounce the seeking of power and to implement love in our own system. So that's the individual level. But what about the collective level? What do we do? Well, Baha'u'llah has done a very clever thing. He has devised an entirely unique system called the covenant. The covenant is a system which utterly defeats the seeking of power because the covenant is a system of social order in which it is impossible to be successful in seeking. You can try. This doesn't mean you can't try. 
but you cannot see it. So the covenant of the Hala, which is given in the is the rock on which this future is. Because it is a system which is now available to which utterly defeats the seeking power. It is impossible to be successful in seeking in if you do, you will destroy yourself. You will destroy yourself. You may be able to live for a certain time under the illusion that you have been successful. You may say, I would really like to be elected to the National Assembly. Maybe you will get elected to the National Assembly. But of course, what you will discover is that you have a lot of work and not very much glory. And so at that point, you will either readjust your appraisal of this whole thing. You will either meet the challenge and uh, put aside the seeking of power. But if you persist, you will simply destroy yourself. Simply destroy yourself. Uh, so, this is the general framework which I will uh, treat uh, specific uh, provisions of the Kitabiyah. The dialogue between God and man, uh, the history of injustice, the establishment of a system in which power is the servant of justice and justice is the servant of love. And the ultimate result of that is simply that we will be happy. That's all. It's just that simple. Okay? It's just that simple. God said, if you want to be happy, you know, here's the way you do it. You'll be happy. You'll enjoy it. And that's why he says, Think not we have revealed a code of laws, we have revealed the choice of your wine. What is wine? It's an image of euphoria, of that which makes you. I'll talk about that. Later.